Good evening. It's good to see you again, as always. We're so glad that you're with us this evening as we gather here to worship our God. Well, let me pray for us, and then we're going to get enter into God's presence with a grateful heart this evening. God, we come into your presence with thanksgiving in our hearts. We come into your courts with praise, and we joyfully worship you this evening because you are our God, and we are your sheep. We are the creation of you, and you are good, and your loving kindness endures forever. And so we worship you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and give thanks. One, two, three. This is the day you have made. Whatever comes, I won't complain. For all my hope is in your name. And now your joy awaits my praise. I give thanks for all you have done. And I will sing of your mercy and your love, your love is Oh 
about those words that we just sang. Where do you need God to be greater in your life? Maybe you need God's strength. 
you stronger.
Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to John 18. As we begin to enter into uh, our study, one of the things that I think is super important, and somebody asked me on Sunday, I said, well, Pastor Gary, why do you talk about the land of Israel so much and, and, and the trips that we do and such things? And the reason being is, if we understand the land, if we go to the land, then we can visualize and see the historical truth about Jesus and the historicity of those truths that are there. And 
we have a trip that's coming up that I want to really want to encourage you guys to be able to go, whether you're watching online or you're here. Um, and that's our trip to Jordan and Israel. And while we're touring, this is not um, intended as a tourist trip, but it's in, intended more or less as Bible school in doing that. So if you're interested in going, we have the flyers online, but we also have the flyers here in the signups that are just outside in the lobby. Um, but I want to show you the video that the tour company sent us prior to our study tonight, because we're picking up tonight um, in Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jerusalem itself. And so in order to kind of frame it in our mind, I want you to watch just the, the tour video as you see some different things. And, and then we're going to enter into our narrative this morning or this evening. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked there. We saw Jerusalem, and, and you saw that, that quick look at Gethsemane. And you saw Joseph of Arimathea's tomb that is there. Tonight, we're going to begin that journey, and then next week we'll be um, seeing the cross, and we'll have a special time of communion next week. But the reason why we go and the reason why we study these things is because, again, it gives us the truth. It gives us a place to be able to put into reference these names, these places that are there. And when you're there and you're reading this text there, it strengthens your faith and it gives you a deeper understanding of what was going on in Jesus' day and, and our day. It's probably safe to say that most people want to avoid pain. I don't know very many people that like pain and suffering. It's something that we try to avoid and, and we, at all possible. But what do you do if, if pain and suffering and sorrow is thrust upon you, if there's no way out? Well, then you have to persevere. You have to endure. And we're entering into this narrative where Jesus was, will be unjustly arrested and accused, brought before a total of six trials, beaten, and then taken to the cross. And we're picking up where Jesus had left the upper room and he had crossed the Kidron Valley and it is coming up to the other side of Gethsemane, into the garden. It, this is ending 
the upper room narrative of John and it's beginning what we would call the passion narrative of Jesus within that. And in the city and come and up onto the Temple Mount, which we had seen. So let's jump right in. In John chapter 18, in verses 1 through 3, we read, And when Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, and there was a garden in which He had entered with the disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying Him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with His disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests, and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches. So we, we start with this narrative where Jesus comes out and he comes across into this place. And it was, the, it was the Mount of Olives that he goes into, this Garden of Gethsemane that is there to be able to, uh, to, be able to, to see this place. He goes across what's called the Brook Kidron. And I can't remember, did I put a picture of, of that in there? Oh, the map, yeah. So... When we take a look at this upper room, he was, Jesus would have been here and he would have gone around the lower city, but he would have gone across the Kidron Valley. Now notice the Kidron Valley runs this way and the Hinnon Valley runs this way. This Valley of Hinnon actually was the place where, where Israel many, many years earlier was worshiping the god Moloch. You remember that? Where they would superheat the statue and they would burn the babies. And that was in the Hinnon Valley. Or have you ever heard of the name Gehenna? Gehenna speaks of this, this Hinnon Valley and the trash heap was down in here. The Kidron Valley comes up. This is the city of David. And he would have been going to Gethsemane across the Temple Mount through the Golden Gate into this area. So he would have passed across this area and come up here to Gethsemane. Now also pay special notice of the Antonio Fortress here and then Herod's Palace here. So tonight we are going to be in Gethsemane, Antonio Fortress, where Pilate would be in one of the trials, and Herod's palace that's here. And moving between the, these two, the Temple Mount is here. So Jesus is going across the Brook Kidron and into the Mount of Olives. And, and within this, it was only about a mile, mile and a half walk. You could do it in about 20 minutes. It's not super long. And so as you picture this, Jesus would have been there, and it would have been Passover time within that period of time. And within that, this Kidron Valley was also the place where David had fled after Absalom had taken over the throne. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, it says, While all the country was weeping with loud voice, and the people passed over, the king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over towards the way of the wilderness. In fact, Sandy, if I can have that map up again really quick, that'd be great. We're going to be using this map quite a bit. So this area is known as the City of David. This is the southern steps. So David's palace would have been right here. And if you notice, there's Absalom's pillar that is right there. So within this proximity, everything was within this whole area. This is a terraced city of David that goes down to the Pool of Siloam. And Hezekiah's tunnel would also run across this. So there's a lot of history that is embedded in this area. In fact, you can't even turn over a rock without finding history. That is, that is all part of that. And so we know that, that within this whole place, it's interesting that King David was betrayed by his own son. And now we have the Son of God 
that is being betrayed by Judas and his own people within this. And this, this theme of betrayal fits in here. Now, Gethsemane, the name Gethsemane means olive press. What is it? It's, it's this huge, huge olive grove. It was a commercial olive grove that was all there. Olives are an essential in the, in the Middle East, in the Near East that's there. And they would take the olives, they would press them down, and they would get different kinds of oil from the olives. And the first pressing was the kind of the raw oil, but if you put extra, extra pressure on the olives themselves, you would get the, the virgin oil, then the extra virgin oil, which was the cleanest of the oils that were there. Now, according to the Mishnah, if you were a Jew, you weren't allowed to be able to go outside of the city of Jerusalem on the night of, of the Passover. You had to stay within. Jesus had been staying in Bethany, which is just over the hill of the Mount of Olives. But because it was the night of the Passover, he would stay in the, and go camping in the Garden of Gethsemane. And whenever he was in Jerusalem, he would go to Gethsemane and spend time to prayer. It's a very nice place and a solemn place that was there. And he was often there and, and Judas knew that he would be there. And so he led the enemies of Jesus to the garden. In fact, we read in Luke twenty one thirty seven. it says, now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives. And in Luke twenty two thirty nine, it says he came out and proceeded and it was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples had followed him. So this was a place where Judas knew Jesus would go. Jesus, no doubt, had a spot where he would go with his disciples and he would pray. And he would, he would just spend time with the Father and he would just get away of the hustle and the bustle of everything that was going on in Jerusalem. Imagine your sacred, solemn place. The place where you would go to find peace becomes the betrayal site. And, and, and how it would be ruined within that. But Jesus, according to the law, would follow the law, not go very far. He would go up to this place. Question, did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him that night? Absolutely. So if he knew he was going to betray him, why go to the very place that he would be found? Because it was necessary. One of the themes that you see through this is the fact that no one took Jesus' life. He gave it. He gave it freely. Jesus at no time was out of control. He was always in control of all of these things. And you think about, why did Judas betray Jesus? <clears throat> well, quite frankly, he was greedy. Things didn't go his way. Judas, in his mind, thought, I'm going to hook up with Jesus. I'm going to follow him. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And when he establishes his kingdom, Rome is going to get kicked out. And I'm going to be on the top drawer of this kingdom. I'm going to be the top guy. I'm one of the twelve. And then Jesus started talking about dying. He's like, well, this isn't working out like I thought. How am I going to get mine while I can we know that the Bible tells us that Judas had been pulling money out of the money bags and he was the treasurer, which is something else that's interesting. Out of all the disciples, why would Jesus give him the monies? Within that, it gives him the choice. Now, Judas goes 
to the soldiers, and he, he creates a plan, and he gets this cohort of about 600 soldiers. These specific, specific soldiers were the relief group. They would have been part of uh, additional soldiers that we had studied. There would have been about a thousand soldiers at this time, but during the Passover, because there were so many people, a cohort of about 600 would have come from Caesarea Maritima. And if you saw in the video, there was Caesarea on the coast. That is Caesarea Maritima. So about 600 soldiers had come down from Caesarea Maritima, the Caesarea on the coast, to come here to help. So they were dispatched with Judas to go to Gethsemane. They would have come out of the Antonio Fortress. If you remember, I showed you where the Antonio Fortress is. They would have come out of the Antonio Fortress, walked along the wall, through the city streets, down through the Golden Gate, crossed the Kidron Valley, and up the other side. Question. If you were sitting only a mile, mile and a half, across a valley, at night, and there were 600 soldiers coming out of a gate with torches, do you think you'd be able to hear them? See them? Yet Jesus prayed. Now, John doesn't give us a detailed account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptics, and they give us the line-upon-line line account. John's giving us the overview. But Jesus was praying in the garden during this time, and the disciples were doing what? Sleeping. Imagine, picture this. You're in this garden, it's dark at night, and, and maybe a little bit of a moonlight, and the disciples are snoring. Peter's really snoring. Yet you hear these soldiers coming out. And Jesus prays, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. As the soldiers are coming through the gate and across the valley and coming up the other side. Could Jesus have escaped, gone over the hill, gone up over to Bethany and, and, and gone down towards the Dead Sea? He did. But he was in control the whole time. And so Judas brings the temple guard, but he didn't just bring the temple guard. He also brought the priests, the Sanhedrin, and the Romans, which is interesting. He brings the religious leaders, the Jewish soldiers from the temple, and the Romans, or the Gentiles, to come and arrest Jesus. In essence, Judas brings representatives of both sides of mankind, the Jews and the Gentiles, who participate in the arrest of Jesus. So no one is skating. The Jews can't blame it on the Romans, and the Romans can't blame it on the Jews. We're all guilty. We're all guilty in coming into this place. Well, as the account goes in verses 4 through 9, it says, So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus said, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am he. And Judas also was betraying him, was standing with them. Special note on how John used that word, standing with them. And so he said to them, I am he. And they drew back and fell on the ground. And therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am, ego a me. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which was spoke of those whom you have given me. I have lost none. So we see this next scene where Jesus meets these captors as they're coming up. And he steps forward and he says, 
Who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Now, why did they ask the question? They're Roman soldiers. You know how many Jews are in the town now? Over a million. Tons. They don't know. And the temple guard, they don't know. That's why they needed Judas. And the sign was set up that Judas would give the one to be betrayed a kiss. Judas is with them. But I love how Jesus takes charge. He just walks right up. Who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. They go on me. Boom. And they fall down. And he waits for him to get back up. <laughs> Who are you looking for? Uh, Jesus the Nazarene. What does this tell us? Jesus was in charge. Jesus was in charge. He was in control of the whole thing. In John 8, chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus would say, No one has taken it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, note, and I have authority to take it up again, and this commandment I have received from my Father. In other words, it was predetermined that I will die, and I will lay down my life, and it is a sacrifice. And I will take it up again with that same power and with that same authority. Jesus was always in charge. He was always in charge through the whole time within this. And he could have stopped at any time. But you remember what he had prayed earlier. John doesn't account for it, but the synoptics do. Father, not my will, but what? Your will be done. And so he's submitting to the will of the Father. Could Jesus have called down a legion of angels? Sure. He could have. He could, he, could have, he could have been done with the whole thing and avoided the whole thing. But do you remember in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, in the temptation where Satan went to him and he said, look at all the kingdoms of the world that you see. Bow down to me and I'll give them to you. What was that temptation really about? Avoiding the cross. I know you're going to get it anyway. Just bow down and I'll give it to you right now. And Jesus didn't fall for that temptation. Nor is he going to fall for the temptation now to save his own skin. He is going to do the Father's will. He knows that at any point in time, he can call down the legion of angels, or he could just open his mouth. Revelation chapter 19, verses 12 and 15 and 16 says this, describing Jesus. When he returns to establish his kingdom... His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on them, which no one knows except himself. Note, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it it may strike down nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress with the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and his thigh is named King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is it time for the sword to come out of Jesus' mouth at this point? No. But he gives them a little bit and he says, I'm here. And I love that. Because a lot of people say Jesus was weak. And a lot of people say that meekness is really weakness. Not true. You know what meekness really is? Power under control. Power under control. And Jesus was meek and he was humble. 
power under control. And the disciples didn't understand it. They didn't understand what was going on in all of this. And he names the name of God, the same name that's used in Exodus 3.14, where he would say this, God speaking with Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am. When he says, ego me or I am, he's declaring the name of God. Who is that for? The disciples and the Jewish priests. He's naming the name of God and demonstrating that power that is there. John seven times would use the name I am, ego me, in his gospel within this. In fact, in John 8, 58, 59, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, ego me. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. I am God. Now you see me, now you don't. And he walked right out. Can you think about how many times Jesus demonstrated his divinity, his power? It's amazing within this. And I think it's also important to note, as I alluded to it, that John says Judas was standing with them. Not with Jesus, not with the disciples, with them. And it fulfills the prophecy spoken of in Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Fulfilling the prophecy that Judas would turn his back. And so within this, Jesus again repeats himself. But then it's interesting. They're there to get Jesus and what does he say? Now that I demonstrated my power... Take me and leave them alone. Why? So that Scripture would be fulfilled that I didn't lose one. Eternal security is an essential doctrine of God. It, it, it tells us that if you can't work your way in, you can't work your way out, you're not going to lose your salvation. That God's got you. Jesus has got you. It's demonstrated here, spoken of in John 10, 28. He says, I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You can be sure that Jesus has got you. And, and, and that will never change within that. And so Jesus protects his disciples. Unfortunately, one of them didn't get the memo. In verses 10 and 11, Peter acts a little foolishly and says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink? Now again, Peter, Peter perceived the injustice. This is not fair. This is not right. I'm going to step in and I'm going to save you. <laughs> Peter, put your pocket knife away. It wasn't like Peter had this big broadsword he was carrying around. The word is a makara, and it's kind of like a utility knife. It's a little thing. And he swings it and he's not very good at it. Malchus ducks, maybe sees it coming, and he only gets his ear. And within this, we think about this. What was Peter doing? What was his motivation? 
Well, Peter was always sticking his foot in his mouth. He was impetuous. He didn't really think. He just kind of did things. You got to love that about Peter. But perhaps Peter was saying, this is my chance to prove what I said to be true. In Matthew 26, verses 33 to 35, it says this, But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away of you, I'll never fall away. Bless your heart, Peter. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say the very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing true, too. Maybe Peter thought, Well, you know, here's my chance. And so... Without thinking, he just swings and he takes off the poor guy's ear, the servant. Not really smart, Peter. Think about this. You've got a pocket knife. There's 600 trained soldiers that are sitting there. And you're swinging this thing and Jesus had already negotiated your release. What are you doing? You know, it's kind of like bringing a knife to a gunfight. You, you, you just don't do it. And so, Jesus corrects Peter's reaction, and he confirms that it's God's will. Peter, put it away. I got this. But now i got to pause it and fix this guy's ear. And the synoptics tells us within this. In fact, in, in Luke... 2251, it says, Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. And he confirmed that it was the Father's will. Question, does God need our help? No. We can sense there's an injustice. We can get involved with something. But perhaps we should stop and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And if God's got it, step out of the way. Let him take care of it. Within this. This is the cup that my Father has given me to drink. Did Jesus endure injustice? Yes. And it had to be that way. Now again, I feel for the disciples because they're clueless. They'll get it later. But how many times do we see a sense of injustice as part of God's sovereign will and we want to get involved? We need to pause and pray. Well, as the account goes in John's account, we move into the trial sequence. John does not cover all of Jesus' trials. But we've got to understand that just in the same way that Jesus went on trial, we're going to be put through trials. Our faith is going to be tested. It's been said, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Guaranteed, your faith will be tested, purified. Within this. And how you handle those times really reveals your devotion towards God. How are you going to handle those difficult times? Are you going to, are you going to allow that faith to be tested and come out shining? Or are you going to try, try to take matters in your own hands within this? Jesus knew of his test, but he also knew of Peter's test. John, who writes of this, tells us about Peter's test. In fact, Jesus prophesied in Luke 22, 31-32. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, 
strengthen your brothers. Interesting. Look at those words. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Who did Satan have to go to in order to even get permission to put Peter on trial? Jesus. And Jesus gave him permission. Now, I'm sure if Peter had a conversation with Jesus, they would have had a conference and decided that this wasn't a good idea. But Peter was included in. Other than the fact, this is what's going to happen. And understand that Satan gets to do this with my permission. There isn't anything that happens to you that doesn't go through the hands of God first. He's in control. And there's a purpose. What's the purpose? That your faith may not fail. And you, notice, once you have turned again. Uh Uh-oh. What does that mean? Once you've turned again. That means you're going to stumble. Once you've turned again. Well, we know the account is we're going to read it. Peter does deny Jesus. And it's not until much later where he turns around in the restoration where Jesus restores him on the beach after having, I like to say fish tacos, but he said, if you love me, feed my sheep. Once you turn again. But you're going to have this period where your faith is going to be tried and you're going to not feel very well. But once you turn again, you're going to strengthen your brothers. How are you going to do that? You're going to preach a sermon at Pentecost. But you've got to go through the trial first within that. And it's important to know that Jesus was praying for Peter that his faith would not fail. Notice it doesn't say he's praying for Peter that he would not deny him. It's the long game. Praying that in this, that he would make it and turn around. Which tells us that there is an element of free will that is within this. And to note that Jesus is praying for him, just like Jesus is praying for us. So within this, we pick up in in the next set of verses here, after Malchus' ear is fixed. Verse 12 to 14, and it says, So the Roman cohort and the commanders and the officers and the Jews arrested Jesus, bound him, led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So John gives us a very small narrative of what's going on. Jesus would have a total of six different trials, three religious, three civil. And so the Roman cohort would bring Jesus down from Gethsemane up to Annas. Now, why did he go to Annas? He went to Annas' house first within this to be tried by Annas privately at night. But Annas didn't have the authority to do it. He wasn't the high priest, but he was... The man behind the curtain. Caiaphas was the official high priest. Annas was the father-in-law. And so now we have this kind of like mafia kind of set up. Where Annas is controlling Caiaphas. And the soldiers bring him to the one that's really in control. The one that really wanted him dead within this. He would go to, Jesus would go to Annas and then Caiaphas and then the Sanhedrin. 
From there, he would go to Pilate, and then he would go to Herod and back to Pilate in order to do this. And we'll unpack this in a minute. So the Roman cohort brings Jesus out of Gethsemane. If I can have that map again. So the Roman cohort, Jesus would have come out of the upper room, down through Gihon to Gethsemane. From here, he, was, he would be arrested and then taken over here to the Antonio Fortress where he would be tried by Annas who would meet here. From there, he would end up, he would end up um, going, I'm sorry, he would go to Annas' house. Then he would go back to Caiaphas' house within this. He would end up over at Herod's and then back to Pilate's. And then he would eventually end up to Calvary here. But this gives you an idea. He's just walking these streets. If you were to walk this, this wouldn't take you very long. Fifteen minutes, maybe, to be able to walk through these places. But it's at night. Within this, and so he would come from he would come across that temple mount, and to the one to the ex high priest that is there. Now Annas was a high priest from eighty six to eighty fifteen. Caiaphas was the high priest from AD eighteen to AD thirty six, and then there would be another high priest after him, Ananias, from AD forty seven to AD fifty eight. So we have Annas and Caiaphas who were the ones that were really in charge with this. Now. It's important to understand that all the world is coming against Jesus. In the three religious and the three civil trials, everybody is coming against Jesus. Why is that important? Because some people would say it's the Jews' fault that Jesus died. And it's not. We all have that hand in it. Now Caiaphas, as I said earlier, was the one who, who decided it was better that one man die. Remember on, on Palm Sunday... He would say, it's better, it's better that one man dies. In fact, in John eleven forty-seven to 50, he would say, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council saying, What are we doing? This man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, note, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away, oh, our place and our nation. What's their motivation? They're going to lose their place. They're going to lose their wealth, their position. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation should perish. What was their motivation? Money and power. You want to know what, what the real deal is? Follow the money, and it will lead you to the power. And they said, let's just kill him. Let's eliminate him. Within this. That was their form of justice. John, though, breaks off of the, the trial narrative to give us an insight of Peter. Look at what's going on with Peter, verses 15 to 18. Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. And now the disciple was known to the high priest and entered into the house or entered with Jesus to the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. And now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. 
And then the high priest questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching. So we'll stop at 18 for a minute because we see two of the three denials happen here. And again, Peter is following Jesus. And we've got a, a picture from the model of what would have been um, Caiaphas's house in this, in this place. Do we have it? There we go. So within this, this is a large courtyard. And there would have been a house that was here and a house that was here. This is off the southern, the southern steps that's in here. You see the Antonio Fortress there. So this is where Pilate would have been. And you see the steps that are here. So you can see it really isn't that far of a walk to come in, walk down the streets, across this wall, come up to this gate and into this courtyard area. Now, Peter would have been somewhere in this courtyard area, and there would have been a gatekeeper, a young girl. And it says the other disciple. Well, who is the other disciple? When you read John, John never mentions himself by name. But it was John. It was John who, who had an in. Somehow he knew the high priest and knew the girl, and he says, I, I know somebody. Let's, let's go in to be able to see what's happening with Jesus. And so he gets into there, and we see this servant girl in verses 17 and 18 question Peter. And the way she questions Peter is interesting because she says, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Which implies, it's, it, it implies, the way it's written in, in Greek, it implies a, a negative response. It, it leaves him the door to say no. You're not one of his disciples, are you? Oh, no. It leaves it open for that. It's interesting how the first time that you deny Christ, when you're on trial, it is so easy to slide right into it without almost thinking. And so Peter denies him, says, I'm not, pretty easy, but yet what happened to the John 13 passage? I'll die for you. Big burly Peter is scared of a little girl. No, he's scared of getting found out within this. But then, Peter moves from the shadows to the warming fire. It's interesting the word that John uses. It's only used one other time. Because he calls the warming fire a charcoal fire. You say, Carrie, why is that important? Because the only other time that the word charcoal fire is used is in John's account in the restoration of Peter by Jesus after they catch the fish and, and they go to the other side and Jesus has breakfast for them. Notice the text in John 21, 9. So when they got out onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire laid and fish placed on it in bread. It was around a charcoal fire that Peter had denied Jesus and it's around a charcoal fire that Jesus restores him back to ministry. He duplicates the denial scene as a restoration scene. And brings him back to this place and says three times, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? This made Peter sad because the Lord had asked him three times. You know I love you. Then feed my sheep around a charcoal fire. 
It's amazing how, how God meets us where we're at to restore us. He'll take us back to the same place where we went off the rails and says, okay, let's get going again. What a blessing in that. John moves the narrative now to the questioning in verses 19 to 24, where he says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about the disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him and said, I've spoken openly to the world, and I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus, saying, Is that any way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him and said, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, John gives us this little window of this narrative where Anna's, Anna, Anna's questions Jesus. According to the Mishnah, it was illegal to have trial by night. You could not have a trial by night. And it was illegal to try somebody or question somebody without the Sanhedrin present, without witnesses that are there. Based on the law of Deuteronomy, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. They was required to do that. Within that law, in fact, in Deuteronomy 19:15, it says, "A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of his iniquity or any sin which he's committed. On evidence that two or three witnesses, a matter shall be conferred." Anna says, "Tell me about your disciples and your teaching." Why did Annas want the disciples' names? Because he was going to go arrest them. What was he looking for the teaching, so he can manipulate? the words, and have accusation against Jesus. What did Jesus do? Very wisely. He said this. If you want to know what I taught, go get the people that I taught and ask them. Why? Because in asking the people that I taught, now you're going to have two or three witnesses that have to agree on what I taught as being wrong. Very wise. And then he gets smacked. And then Jesus says, if I've done wrong, prove it. Prove that I've done wrong. But he did no wrong within this. He says, why do you strike me? And because he wasn't getting anywhere, he sends him over to Caiaphas. Why? Because now he's got to figure out how to make this murder legal. So he sends him over to the true high priest, Caiaphas, still at night for the second religious trial. Then he'll have another one after daybreak in front of the Sanhedrin to determine what they already determined before just to make it legal within that because they can only do a, a trial after sunrise. Meanwhile, while this is going on, Peter is still on trial in verse 25 to 27. says, Now... Meanwhile, while this is going on, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. And he says, I'm not. Then one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed. 
Oh, Peter. In this scene of this denial, we see Peter still at the warming fire. Now, if you've already denied twice, and you know it's been prophesied you're going to deny three times, wouldn't it be wise to leave? I'm thinking, I got, he said three times, I, I got to go. It's getting a little hot around here. But he stays. He stays. And the fact that he cut the guy's ear off, Malchus has a relative that just so happens to be there that calls him out on his actions. And he was caught red-handed. And he denied it. And then the rooster crowed. There is a condition that we run into where we start walking in the ways of the ungodly. Then we stand in the seat of the scornful. scornful. And then we sit. This, this downward progression. We see it in Psalms. Peter should have left and he didn't. And he stayed way too long. And he got into a place where he denied what was going on. In fact, in Matthew 26, verses 71 72, says, When he gone out of the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied with an oath or he swore. Didn't I see you in the crowd? And in Matthew 26, 74, then he began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. And the rooster crowed. Matthew is, is, is much firmer than John's account. Have you ever been caught so red-handed that you swear up and down, I didn't do it, I'm not guilty? But you really are. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly within this. Why? Because he realized what had gone on. Each time Peter was confronted, each time Peter denied. And it was the third watch, which puts it about somewhere between 12 midnight and 3 a.m. within this. Luke tells us something happened right at that moment, which is a powerful scene. In that courtyard you saw, Jesus was being moved from Caiaphas back over to Annas' house. In Luke 20, 22, 61, 62, it says, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the word of the Lord, he, how he told him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. and went out and wept bitterly. Could you imagine what that would have looked like. I swear I don't know the man. And there he is looking. Making eye contact. What do you do? You're caught. In your sin. And you grieve over that sin. It would take Peter some time. To be restored. Not until that beach way after the resurrection, when Peter's contemplating not following Jesus anymore and just going back to fishing. And Peter restores him around the charcoal fire. The charcoal fire that he had denied him at. Don't we have a gracious God? A loving God that meets us where we're at. And Jesus said, I will not lose one. Powerful. We come to the last part, 
which moves into the civil trial of John. He will have a couple more trials within this, but John gives us his account of the civil trial beginning with verse 28. It says, And then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early, and then they, they themselves did not enter the Praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat of the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered, and they said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Notice they didn't answer the question. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. Now we know the motive. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke signifying by which kind of death he would die. So in this, we see this change. The third trial that John doesn't mention would have happened in front of the Sanhedrin. After daylight, they say he's guilty. And then they would have taken him over to the Antonio Fortress. Going to the Antonio Fortress, they call Pilate out. Pilate says, what do you want? What do you want? These, these elders, the scribes, and the 70 plus Sanhedrin that are there, that are, that are at the Antonio Fortress, the judgment seat. And he goes to this place. But notice the hypocrisy in verse 28. It says, they would not go into the praetorium, but stayed outside. Why? Because if we go inside, we're going to be defiled and we can't celebrate Passover. Wait a minute. You're going to kill an innocent man? And you're worried about being unclean because you go on the steps of a Gentile fortress? Hence the straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. The hypocrisy. What did he do wrong? Well, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. Notice they don't even say it. If he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. Why don't you judge him yourself? Because we can't kill him the way we want to kill him. The Jews, by law, were permitted to stone to death according to the Jewish law. But that wasn't good enough. They wanted to make an example of him. They wanted him to be crucified. And only the Romans could crucify Because it was the most, get this, excruciating form of death. And the word excruciating means out of the cross. And that's where we get our word excruciating from. They were worried about being unclean and not making dinner. Which is sad within this. And so Pilate, while he was governor over Judea from 26 A.D. to 37 A.D., was not a very good governor. In fact, he was, he was very wishy-washy and he was in trouble a lot. And he was on duty there because he had gotten into trouble a lot with the Roman government. So he, he wasn't even happy being there. And so they manufacture this lie. They can't accuse him of a religious deed. So what do they accuse him of? They accuse him of doing something against the Roman government. Notice in verse in Luke 30 or 23, 2. And they began to accuse him saying, "We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king." We can't get them on religious grounds, so let's make it political. Now, I know people today don't make things political just to get their own way. That doesn't happen today, does it? Manufactured political lies to get their way. 
Pilate deflected and he says, take them and judge them yourself. But they couldn't do this. And it was all part of fulfilling the way that Jesus would die. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, as Peter would preach later, he says that this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, the Romans, and put him to death. God planned it that way. And in Galatians 3.13, Paul would write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It was predetermined that Jesus would die on the cross. Question, who's in charge? God. But all of these things are coming together. So Pilate pulls Jesus in and privately has this this little meeting in verses 33 to 38. He says, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium, summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom's not of this realm. Well, therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus said, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate says, what is the truth? Do you remember what Jesus said much earlier where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I was born a king and into this world declare my kingdom, which is not of this world. I love how Jesus says, is this your opinion or somebody else tell you this? This was his mission. In this, we understand that that Jesus had established the fact that he is going to be the Messiah. In fact, it's really important that we have the right idea who Jesus is. We need to know who Jesus is. Jesus would ask his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the north, in Matthew 16, 13 to 17, he says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some John said John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter said this, note, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Good job, Peter. You got one right. But what's the most important thing? It's not what other people say about Jesus. What do you say about Jesus? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Is He King? And this kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, you're a king, yes, but not the way you think. To clarify this and understand that He is the King. And he is the truth. Psalm 86, 11 prophesies of this. says, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In this we understand that we follow after Jesus. We will have that truth. John 8, 31, 32. 
where Jesus would say to the Jews, if you continue in my word, then you are truly of my, a disciple of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will what? Make you free. Pilate says, what is the truth? Which I think is very interesting because isn't that the dilemma that the world's in today? It's called relativism. Relativism. What's the truth? I don't know. I got my truth. You got your truth. You get to believe your truth. I get to believe my truth and we're all happy, right? No. Because you're all relatively wrong. There's only one truth. His name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And following after him means you walk in the truth. Pilate, just like any other secular leader, has no clue within this. So what does Pilate do within this? It says, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out and said, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate's opinion was that Jesus was innocent. Now, John condenses everything because he has Pilate's trial, and he doesn't even mention Herod's trial because really nothing happened other than that Jesus was mocked and he didn't talk to Herod. And he comes back to Pilate, and so now he's back at Pilate's. Pilate says, I need to be done with this guy. What do I do with him? I got an idea. You have a custom. That's a custom of kindness. I know. I'll offer up Barabbas or Jesus. Barabbas was a really bad guy. He was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. He was a criminal. And he was, he was enemy number one. And they said, I would choose this guy over Jesus. They hated him that much. Within this. And I think that we need to understand that Pilate, as much as he wanted to release Jesus, couldn't. Pilate was looking for the win-win. So that the blood of Jesus was not on his hands. In fact, he would go and wash his hands. I washed my hands of the blood. And the people said, may his blood be on us. And it was. And they called for his death. And the crowd rejected Jesus. How bad do things have to get where somebody is so blind when, when pure love incarnate is right in front of you and you just reject it? How dark does society have to get when the, the way, the truth, and the life to eternal life is right in front of them and they choose darkness? We're there. We're there today where the world is rejecting truth and the world is rejecting love and the world is rejecting light. But does that change the outcome? No. Jesus will still die on the cross for them and He will still offer salvation for them. For anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We're going to pick up next week where Jesus is crowned with a crown of thorns taken to the cross where we'll move through John 19 and we'll have a time of being able to celebrate
what Jesus has done for us in forgiving our sins. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the great gift of grace and love that you've afforded to us. Lord, I know that though our sins have condemned us, you're greater than that condemnation and you've given us life. Lord Jesus, so many times we are so full of ourselves, we'll say we'll never do that. And we succumb to the trial or the temptation. Yet I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're there to restore us. That your love is greater. That your love is mighty to save. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the truth and walk in that love. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and to saving us and giving us that life. As we close our night tonight, we have a couple of songs. Let's worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and just honor Him for all that He's done for us. I'm not.
Thank you for all that you went through while you were being tried. We are grateful for you, our King. As we go and finish our week, may we honor you in everything we say and do. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen and praise Jesus. We'll see you on Sunday and Saturday, hopefully. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.